Today we're going to talk about Proverbs being principles and not promises. Okay, so last week we talked a little bit about the fear of the Lord being the beginning of wisdom. And that, I think, is both a principle and a promise. We're supposed to have the fear of the Lord. We defined it in this way. The fear of the Lord is not a posture of hiding. This isn't terror of God where I'm running and I'm ducking for cover, but the fear of the Lord is a posture of drawing near. Just like anything else in life that is good, that has some danger in it, a beautiful waterfall, the Grand Canyon, to really appreciate it, to understand it, to be transformed by it. We have to draw near, even in danger, to something that's so good and beautiful. And so we set that up last week, but I think a lot of you would have walked away from here asking this question. Why don't Proverbs always work in my life? Why is my life in a place where I try to follow the wisdom of God, but things do not work out the way I hope. And here's a scripture that I think a lot of you could understand. Uh, Why are Proverbs not promises? Why are they principles? Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he's old, he'll not depart from it. Now I know that we're touching on a place here that is delicate and fragile and may have some pain for some of us. Because there are those here who have children or grandchildren who have tried to follow God's wisdom. Train up this child, this grandchild, in the fear of the Lord. And we hope that they won't depart from it, but sometimes they do. And maybe they seem farther away from God now than ever before. And you're wondering, why don't the Proverbs work for me? And some others of you haven't experienced this particular pain. But there are other things in your life where you've wondered, how did I end up here? I've tried to do it God's way, and so I've been dating this awesome guy or this great girl, but they've been pressuring me to move along faster, and they want to have sex now before we're married, and I've been trying to wait for marriage like I was told to, but then they break up with me, and so I lose the relationship because I'm trying to follow God's wisdom. How can following God's wisdom end up in brokenness like that? I have a friend who used to be a baseball coach of mine when I was a boy, who's now an elder at my home church in Pennsylvania, who was fired a number of years ago from a job because he wouldn't lie for his employer. And so the employer fired him. And he didn't turn it into any type of uh, legal you know, pursuit or lawsuit. He didn't turn the employer in. He decided he would go and seek out other employment, and he did, and God blessed him in it. But it took a number of months before their home was stable again because he had been fired for doing the right thing. And I I wonder if he asked, how did I get here? Why isn't the wisdom of God working for me? And so I want to try to solve this for us this morning. Not all of the particular problems, but the overarching problem with this quote that I'm about to show you. And I hope that this isn't just clear right now. We're going to clear this up by the time we're done. But this is a quote that I think can help us solve the problem. I'd sooner be eaten by you than fed by anyone else. I'd sooner be eaten by you than fed by anyone else. I hope there's a few of you that are thinking, I've heard that somewhere. I've heard that somewhere, but I can't remember where. And I'll tell you in a little bit. You don't have to be on Google and look it up right now, but I'm sure half of you are. So here's what we're going to do to try to get a little closer to the problem. We're going to dig into this a little bit by talking about why doesn't this sentence make sense to you sitting in the pew? And this is the reason. This sentence doesn't make sense because you don't understand the context of this sentence. You don't know 
Who is saying this to whom and why? So this sentence wouldn't make a lot of sense for you or me in our regular daily routines. I walk up to Jeff Deloach and I say, I'd sooner be eaten by you than fed by anyone else. It wouldn't make sense. Jeff would be appalled unless he was really, really hungry, you know? So it wouldn't make sense. You could be in the woods and you come across a, a grizzly bear, not in Arkansas, but maybe somewhere. And you come across this grizzly bear. Would it make sense for you to say to the bear, Mr. Bear, I'd sooner be eaten by you than fed by anyone else. He would say, sure, no problem. But is that really what you would say? No, you'd run in terror. You'd say, I don't want to be eaten by you. So not knowing the context of this sentence is a big problem because you can't use it. It absolutely makes no sense to you. You cannot use this yet, but you will be able to by the time we're done today. So let's consider for a few minutes other sayings that are our favorites. I want you on your program today to write down your favorite saying. And it could be a proverb, it could be biblical, or it could be an American saying of some kind, some adage, some aphorism, something maybe that your grandmother used to say or your grandfather used to say, and they said it over and over. What's a saying that sticks in your mind? Maybe you used to think it was so silly because your grandmother would say it over and over and over. Why did you think it was silly? Because familiarity breeds contempt. Now, after she's gone, why do you remember the saying fondly? Because absence makes the heart grow fonder. Isn't this the way our sayings work? Okay, Here, here's a list of sayings. You can write your own down, but here's some I wrote down, and I wrote these down in about 30 seconds this morning. Okay, so here we go. The way things stick in our heads. Okay, actions speak louder than words. All that glitters is not gold. The squeaky wheel gets the grease. Variety is the spice of life. You can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. An apple a day keeps the doctor away. The apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Beauty's in the eye of the beholder. Beggars can't be choosers. Might makes right. Old habits die hard. Better safe than sorry. Curiosity killed the cat. Don't bite off more than you can chew. Can't stand the heat? Get out of the kitchen. Now, I did write those down in about 30 seconds, but I also used Google. <laughs> so here's the question about all of these sayings. Are they always true? Answer, are they always true? No, of course they're not. They're not always true. Let's look at a couple of examples and think about the one you wrote down. Think about these two examples right here that maybe your grandmother actually did say. Too many cooks spoil the broth. Well, in one setting, that makes a lot of sense because grandma's on Thanksgiving morning trying to get this turkey done and everybody is poking around trying to get a little bite of the pumpkin pie or the turkey. They're like that dad in the movie who just can't stay away from the turkey and he's always got his hands in it, right? And she says, get out of the kitchen. Too many cooks spoil the broth. But a few hours later, when everyone's belly is full of cranberry sauce and stuffing and turkey and everyone's getting a little sleepy and grandma's the only one in the kitchen with all of the dishes, she says, hey, everybody, come on in. Many hands make light work. And so in the one setting, in the same day, grandma can use one saying and it wouldn't have been true to use the other one. And a few minutes later, she uses the saying that wouldn't have been true a few minutes before. And so we can see that these sayings are only true in context. They're not always true in every situation, regardless of the setting. Here's another example, and then we'll move on. A miss is as good as a mile. This is a famous American saying. But here's another one. Close only counts in horseshoes and hand grenades. I hope you can see where this is going. Is it always true that a miss is as good as a mile? 
No, a miss is not as good as a mile if you're the one catching the hand grenade. Let's look at the book of Proverbs for just a minute. Proverbs, like our English sayings, are not always true. It sounds kind of harsh to say that about the Bible. Proverbs are true in context. Here's an example of two back-to-back Proverbs that used to give Jewish rabbis heartburn. I'm telling you, there's a lot of writing in the Jewish rabbinical midrash about the Bible about whether or not Proverbs should have even been in the Bible because of these two that you're about to see. Proverbs 26.4, do not answer a fool according to his folly, or you yourself will be just like him. And so this verse says, when somebody really, really foolish is spouting off all of their reasons or their opinions, maybe they're on the internet and they're in the comment feed and they just can't stop, they can't shut up, they just keep writing and writing and writing. Are you supposed to answer a fool in the midst of their folly? No, this says no way because you'll become just like them. And you can imagine getting sucked into the comment wars on the internet or into a water cooler debate about politics at work where you just know if I open my mouth, I'll be just as dumb as him because there's no win in this situation. But the next proverb, the one that really gave the the heartburn to all of those Jewish rabbis says this, answer a fool according to his folly or he'll be wise in his own eyes. And so how can the Bible tell you in in one verse, don't answer him, in the next verse, answer him? Well, it's simple. You have to understand the context of the situation. You have to use some wisdom. You have to be able to think about, will it really help him and will it help me if I open my mouth right now? And if it won't, then verse four is appropriate. And if it can, then verse five is appropriate. But it's not appropriate just to speak for the sake of speaking. It's appropriate to speak if the answering will help the situation. And so, should one respond to a fool or not? The answer is this, it's yes and no. Yes and no, depending on the context. And here's where we're at so far. Wise sayings rely on context. It leads to this next point. Wise sayings rely on context, and so, A proverb's true power is in the way one wields it. You see, the way you use the proverb makes all the difference. You come to the situation again at the water cooler or the comment stream online. Which proverb will you use? How will you use it to guide your decision today? The power of all of these sayings is in how you wield them. And let's look at an example from Scripture. Proverbs 26, 7 says this. Like the useless legs of one who is lame is a proverb in the mouth of a fool. So just like legs that don't work aren't a great help to you, a proverb that isn't used correctly is of no help to a foolish person. Again, the proverbs say this in, uh, uh, here we go. Oh, we lost one. Maybe we lost a slide here. I'll read it from my notes. Oh, there it is. Like a thorn bush in a drunkard's hand is a proverb in the mouth of a fool. This comes from Proverbs 26, 9, just two verses later. And so what this scripture teaches about itself is that you've got this wise saying, but you don't know how to wield it correctly. You don't know how to, how to leverage it, how to use it right. It will not only do damage to the person you're, you're sending it to, 
But the thorns will cut your own hand. It's going to do damage to both of you because in the mouth of a fool, a proverb can't be wielded correctly. And so you could put this in your notes this morning. Uh, This would be like maybe our proverb on the Proverbs. What did we just learn from those two Proverbs? Well, this is what we learned. Poorly wielded, a proverb brings disgrace. And so if it's not used right, it's only going to bring harm. Poorly wielded, a proverb brings disgrace. Let's look at some Proverbs that are used rightly. A person finds joy in giving an apt reply. What is apt? Well, it's timely. It's fitting. It's right. And so a person finds joy in giving an apt reply. How good is a timely word? Have you ever had that moment, maybe just once in your life because you're not like the witty guy in the group, when you made a joke at just the right moment? And everybody in the room laughed, and you go, boy, it feels good to have a timely word, right? Or maybe you've comforted someone, and they turned to you afterwards, or they wrote you a note later, and they said, all these people said this and that and this and that. But when you said this to me, it made all the difference. It makes you feel so good. And so the Proverbs also say this in Proverbs 25, 11, a word aptly spoken is like apples of gold and settings of silver, And so the Proverbs say on the one hand, you know, if a fool uses it, it's going to bring disgrace. But on the other hand, aptly spoken, a proverb delights. You can put this in your notes as well. Aptly spoken, rightly wielded, well used, a proverb delights. It brings joy to the speaker and the hearer. Now before we're done this morning, we're going to spend a few minutes looking at a case study of a character in Scripture. Joseph is familiar to most of you. If you were raised reading the stories of Scripture, you know pretty well what happened to him, how he was sold into slavery and then used by God to deliver his family. But this morning I want you to think about what the experience of Joseph would have been like in the middle of his years of frustration. Do you remember how old Joseph was when he was sold into slavery? He was 17 All his life in front of him. By the time his brothers recognize him in Egypt, 22 years have passed. Can you imagine being sold by your family into slavery, into the gaping maw of Egypt, where people disappear into a life of slavery and never return, and to spend 22 years wondering, will I see them again? You see, in Joseph's story, he still uses wisdom, and we'll talk about that here in a second. But Joseph's an example of principled living, even in spite of events in which wisdom seems to have failed. Okay, he lives a godly life, even when it seems like all his right decisions have failed him. Let's dig a little deeper into the story for a moment. Joseph began to have these dreams, right? Do you remember his dreams? Joseph dreamed that he was this one sheaf of grain and all of the others which represented his family were bowing down before him. He dreamed he was a, a, a body in the heavens and all the other stars and the sun and the moon were bowing down before him. And he told these stories to his family and they ridiculed him. They were like, you know, who do you think you are next to youngest of all of the brothers that we would bow to you? Even his dad is like, You really need to stop it, son. You need to stop talking this way. 
And so his brothers devise a plan, and they're going to kill him. But Reuben says this, you know, we don't need to kill him. There's more than one way to skin a cat. Maybe that's when that phrase was invented. And so Reuben says to the brothers, why don't we just put him in this pit instead? We'll keep him there for a while. We don't have to kill him, and then his blood won't be on our hands. And so the brothers agree. But a little while later, when Reuben has left the scene, they sell him into slavery, and Joseph is transported to Egypt, where he is sold to a man named Potiphar. Now, Potiphar's wife was an adulterous woman. We don't know how many different lovers she had, but we can tell from the Joseph story she wasn't faithful to her husband. And so Potiphar's wife said this one day when she saw how handsome Joseph was, when the cat's away, the mice will play. Maybe that's when that saying was invented. And she looked at Joseph and she tried to grab hold of him and she said, come to bed with me. And she grabbed his coat. But Joseph remembered the wisdom of God and maybe these verses were in his mind. The lips of the adulterous woman drip honey, Proverbs 5, 3, and 4. And her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she's as bitter as gall. Sharp as a double-edged sword. And so he could have had advantage in the house of Potiphar by finding favor with the wife of Potiphar. But in his wisdom, he makes a decision. And Joseph thinks this to himself, you know, it takes two to tango. And maybe that's when that saying was invented. And so he leaves his coat in her hand and he runs away only to his disgrace when she lies about the situation and he's thrown into prison. And so Joseph spends some years in prison, and he becomes faithful, and he's honored, and he begins to be put in charge of all of the work in the prison, until one day, two servants of Pharaoh, the king, who are also in prison, have had troubling dreams. And Joseph is able to interpret their dreams for them, and tell them and promise that the cupbearer is going to be restored to his place of honor. And he says to the cupbearer, when you get back to Pharaoh, don't forget about me. Joseph says, one good turn deserves another. And maybe that's the day that that saying was invented. But the cupbearer forgets about Joseph. And the scriptures say that for two more years, he remains in prison thinking, how did I get here? I keep doing everything right. I keep following God's wisdom. I fled from the adulterous woman. I interpreted the dream through the, through the Holy Spirit's power. How did I get here? And the cupbearer, two years later, after Pharaoh has a dream, remembers Joseph. And the cupbearer says to himself, hmm, better late than never. And maybe that's the day that that saying was coined. And so he tells Pharaoh about Joseph, and they bring him out of prison. And Pharaoh looks at Joseph, and he asks him to interpret the dream, and Joseph does. And Pharaoh's looking at him thinking, this is a Hebrew slave. How can I put him in charge of the kingdom? But Pharaoh also thinks necessity is the mother of invention. And maybe that was the day that saying was coined. And so he takes Joseph using appropriate wisdom and he puts him in charge of all of Egypt. And Joseph says, he who laughs last laughs best. And maybe that's the day that that saying was coined. But I want to read to you from Scripture, and it's not on the screens behind you, because I want your ears and your hearts right now. But I'm going to read to you what Joseph says when he meets his brothers a full nine years after he was released from prison. He's 30 when he gets put in charge of Egypt. He's 39 when his brothers show up. And this is what he says to them in Genesis 45, verses 4 to 8. Come close to me. And remember, they're afraid because he's very powerful. But the fear of the Lord is not a posture of hiding, it's a posture of drawing near. 
And so they draw near to Joseph, who at that time is as good as their Lord and Master. And when they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed, and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here, because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now there's been famine in the land, and the next five there'll be no plowing and no reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then it was not you who sent me here, but God. How did I get here? No, who brought me here? How did God and why did God lead me here? And Joseph is finally able to say, he made me even like a father to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household and ruler of all Egypt. How did God lead me here? Going back to this saying that I gave to you earlier, the one that was completely out of context, I'd sooner be eaten by you than fed by anyone else. It's spoken of all people by a horse. In C.S. Lewis's great Chronicles of Narnia, in the third book, The Horse and His Boy. I told you last week we'd come back to Lewis a few times in the next few weeks. In this story, there's two horses and two children who are running for their lives from slavery, similar to Joseph in some ways. And they learn through their own difficult passages in life what it is to fear Aslan, the great lion, who's the stand-in for our Lord Jesus in these stories. And this is a little conversation that happens when the boy finally meets the lion. I'd just like to finish by reading this to you. The boy tells the lion about all of the terrible things that have happened to him, how they've been chased by lions, how they've been uh, persecuted by people. And the large voice, because he doesn't know this is Aslan yet, the large voice says this, I do not call you unfortunate. Don't you think it was bad luck to meet so many lions, says the boy. There was only one lion, says the voice. There was only one lion. What on earth do you mean? I've just told you there was at least two the first night and, interrupted, there was only one, but he was swift of foot. And the boy says, how do you know? Aslan responds, I was the lion. And Shasta gaped with an open mouth and said nothing, and the voice continued, I was the lion who forced you to join with the girl, Erebus. I was the cat who comforted you among the houses of the dead. I was the lion who drove the jackals from you while you slept. I was the lion who gave the horses the new strength of fear for the last mile so that you would reach King Loon in time. And I was the lion who you do not remember, who pushed the boat in which you lay, a child near death, so that it came to where a man sat wakeful at midnight to receive you. In other words, in all of your trials, I was chasing you to where you are now. And Shasta says, who are you? Sometimes we ask God, who are you? As we only begin to learn the fear of the Lord. And the voice said, deep and low, so that the whole earth shook, myself. And then again, loud and clear and gay, myself. And then the third time, myself. Whispered so softly, you could hardly hear it. And yet it seemed to come from all around as if the leaves rustled with it. Shasta was no longer afraid that the voice belonged to something that would eat him, nor that it was the voice of a ghost, but a new and different sort of trembling came over him, and yet he felt glad, too. And a few moments later, this brave horse named Huin comes forward to the lion, who she's been terrified of, and says, Aslan, 
I would sooner be eaten by you than fed by anyone else because the children and the horses have only just started to learn the fear of the Lord and how good it is in spite of life's difficulties of, of being pursued by evil, of having disappointment, of your children not coming through, of the employer firing you, of the, the person that you thought you loved leaving you at the altar, of saying, how did I get here? And God transforms it into, no, why did I lead you here? And we say, God, I'd rather be consumed by you than fed by anyone else. Church, amen? Amen. amen. And so we give you this invitation. Why did God bring you here? What are you doing here? And how can this church help? Do you need to be baptized into Jesus? Do you need prayers? Do you need some guidance? Do you need some wisdom for the way? Because we'd love to help. We'll have shepherds at our front and at our back as we stand and we sing this song of invitation. Please come.